Father in heaven, I know that I am unworthy and unable for the task at hand. God, but You are more than able. Father, in spite of a foolish and frail servant, would You speak mightily? Father, some of us here this morning need to be convicted, need to be challenged by Your Word. We need to reform and conform and transform our minds and our spirits by the power of Your Word. God, some of us here this morning need comfort and encouragement and strength. The most amazing thing, Father, is that Spirit, You are able to move and do that through this Word. God, Your Word is completely sufficient and perfect. And we pray that, Spirit, You would move amongst us and speak to us. That, Father, the foolish words of my mouth would not be heard. Only Your words would be remembered. God, that You would speak to us. That You would teach us from Your Word. And that, God, You would add the richest blessing to the reading, to the teaching, to the proclamation of Your Holy Word. We ask all these things in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, if you've been tracking with us for any length of time, we are still in the book of Exodus, and we will finally venture out of where we have been. We will be in Exodus chapter 4, and we're going to be beginning in verse 18 this morning. So, to lead up to where we are, let's kind of just look back at where we've been. And at this point... We've studied much of the conversation between Moses and the Lord. We hear in the beginning of Exodus that Pharaoh becomes afraid of the Israelites. Joseph, the great patriarch, has been forgotten. Nobody remembers that Egypt would not even exist without God providing for that nation and the rest of the world through Joseph and through Jacob's family, through the Israelites, because of the great things that God showed Joseph. All of that's forgotten. And then the Pharaoh in Egypt, Pharaoh is just another title for king, remember? The Pharaoh, another Pharaoh arises, they forget Joseph completely, and they enslave the Israelites out of fear. They go through these terrible things of of killing the babies that are born, the male babies. They do all sorts of atrocities towards these Israelites. And in the midst of it, Moses' life is preserved. God miraculously helps Moses and causes Moses to survive and to be raised as a prince. In Pharaoh's household, Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses in a basket in the river. And then he is raised in Pharaoh's house. He tries to run from his sin. He kind of has an identity crisis. He kills a man and hides him in the sand. He he doesn't know how to identify necessarily with the Egyptians. And he doesn't know necessarily how to identify with the Israelites. The Israelites say, who's made you a judge and a prince over us? And so he's afraid that the Israelites won't accept him, so he just runs. He just he takes off and leaves. And what happens is he finds a, a, a lovely young lady and helps her with her, her watering of her flock. And Jethro, or Rule, the same guy, two names, they take him into their house and he's living in the land of Midian. And so he lives there for about 40 years being a shepherd. Just the lowest of low to the Egyptians. A simple shepherd. And one day while he's out, he passes near the mountain of the Lord and he sees a bush that is on fire but not being consumed. There's no smoke rising from it. It's just this great ball of flame. 
And we talked about how he approaches and God reveals himself to Moses and says, I am who I am and the character and nature within that name. Then we spent a Wednesday night talking about the character and nature of God that's revealed through his various names that he shows us in Scripture. And then we looked at Moses' obedience. Remember last Sunday we talked about how it took simple, faithful steps of obedience from Moses. God could have turned the staff into a snake while it was in his hand, but God said, throw it down. So Moses had to throw it down first. Then God required for Moses to pick the snake back up by the tail. And even though Moses ran from this snake, this veteran shepherd runs from this snake. It's probably deadly. Moses is brave enough to walk over there and pick it up by the tail. But then Wednesday night, we looked this past Wednesday night at the excuses. Five excuses that Moses gives And even though he's faithful and obedient in these small steps, put your hand in your cloak, throw down your staff, pick it up, the overarching mission that God is calling him to, Moses wholeheartedly resists. His last statement to the Lord is, God, please, just send somebody else. And so the Lord says, no, Moses, you're going to go. And that's where we pick up, right here in chapter 4, verse 18. So I would ask, if you still have your Bible, to take it back out, turn with me, to the very beginning of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Go Genesis, then boom, Exodus, the very next one. We are going to begin in chapter 4, verse 18. And we're going to read through the end of chapter 4, which is verse 31. Before we stand back up, I do want to give a disclaimer, alright? We're going to talk about some things that I am not going to apologize for that are in Scripture, but there are some sensitive things that are discussed in this passage. So do be aware going into this that there are some sensitive things we're going to have to talk about. Just be mindful of that. And if you want to cover small ears, you can cover small ears or whatever you want to do. But there are some sensitive topics that we have to wrestle with. And I just don't believe in skipping over different version passages in God's Word just because they might be difficult texts or they might talk about something that makes us blush. So, God's Word is still all-sufficient. There's still a great Word for us this morning. I just want you to know and be aware where we are. So, if you found your place, would you please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's Holy Word once again. When we have finished reading, once again I will say, this is the Word of the Lord. I encourage you to respond with saying, thanks be to God. Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. The Word of the Lord says, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. 
So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we look at this passage this morning, there's, there's four things that we're going to see, beginning in verse 18 and going through 31. The first thing, if you're taking any notes, in verses 18 to 20, we saw that God informs Moses that he can return to Egypt. So I want you to keep in mind many of the other stories that we've already seen in Genesis. If you'll remember, God puts a generic call on Abram when his, before his name is Abraham. And he says, Abram, I want you to pack up and be willing to go. And then he comes back to Abram and says, now go, and here's where I want you to go. The same thing is very true in the case of Moses. Oftentimes in Scripture, in Scripture, you will find these doublets. So this is where God has appeared to Moses in the burning bush, but now God speaks to Moses and goes, all right, now it's time you can head back. So God informs Moses that he can return to Egypt in the first two verses. The second thing is that he reminds Moses of his call. He reminds Moses of his call and gives Moses the outcome once again. Moses has already been informed of what his duties will be, and God has already told Moses, here is how they will respond. So God spends time in verses 21 to 23 reminding Moses of the call that he has, the mission that he has, and how successful that mission will be. Listen, if, if God's voice were to speak out to me or to you, and you were to hear the audible voice of God, undeniably the voice of God speaking to you, saying, go and share the gospel with Bob, because Bob is not saved and he needs the gospel. And he says, I'm telling you to go share, because when you share, whatever you say, my spirit's going to be with you, and Bob is going to accept Christ. Would that not just light your fire immediately to go, man, I can go talk to Bob. God already told me. Bob's going to respond positively. It's going to be awesome. He's already told me he's going to say the words. This is the mission that Moses has given. And God, all along the way, I will be with you, Moses. Not only will I be with you, I'll give you the words to say. Not only will I give you the words to say, but they're going to respond in an extremely positive way. Your mission's going to be a huge success, Moses. All you got to do is go. So he reminds him of the mission and tells him, here's the outcome. Then we'll see as we move into verses 24 to 26, this crazy, bizarre passage that most scholars have no idea what to do with. God just told Moses, you can go back to Egypt. God just reminded Moses of his call and the fact that the mission will be successful. And then in verses 24 to 26, all of a sudden, God's trying to kill Moses. Where did that come from? I mean, if you and I are reading our Bible, just going straight through it, no big deal, relaxed, reading through the book of Exodus, just devotional, man, all right, God's, man, he's, he's telling Moses again, this is good. All right, man, God's telling Moses, go talk to Pharaoh, it's going to be successful, it's going to be great, your brother's going to come meet you. And then, all of a sudden, God's trying to kill Moses. So that's 
we're going to spend a little bit of time diving into that in a moment. The fourth thing, he, he sends Aaron to encourage and assist Moses. That's verses 27 to 31. So those are the four things we're going to walk through this morning. He informs Moses, you can go back. He reminds Moses of his call and tells him the outcome. He seeks Moses' life, and then he sends Aaron to encourage and assist Moses. So in these first two verses, he goes back to his father-in-law. And guys, I don't know if Moses is being intentionally deceitful or if he's just trying to withhold some information from his father-in-law. But I know my father-in-law, and he's a great man, but I'm, I'm just enough scared of him. Is there any other son-in-law in the house that you know your father-in-law real well and you're just enough scared of him? He's a great guy and everything, but there's just a little... Okay, it's just me. All right. That's okay. Some of us are sitting near our father-in-law and and may not be able to raise your hand. might be wise to raise your hand right now if you're sitting near your father-in-law. Just throwing that out there. But I guess I'm out on a limb. I would be really afraid to go to my father-in-law and be like, Hey, guess what? I'm taking your daughter. We are going to Saudi Arabia. We're going to talk to the king. We're going to talk to the shah. We're going to talk to the prince. And we're going to say, you got to let all the the followers of Jesus be free. And God's going to be with us and he's going to move. No, the, the shah, the king's going to see you, laugh at you, and then behead you, and you're not taking my daughter there, okay? I, I just feel like that would be the initial response. He'd probably come around if God really was calling us to that, but I, I can see a trepidation in Moses. And don't ever assume that just because he's Moses, anything about this man is perfect. He's probably intimidated by his father-in-law, who is a big deal in the land of Midian. And he's probably intimidated to tell his father-in-law what's really about to happen. So he's like, uh, Jethro, I'm, I'm going back to Egypt. I want to see if my brothers are there. I want to see if they're doing okay. Which is partially true, right? I mean, he does go back and he does find his brother and find that they're all doing okay. But he just leaves out the part where we're going to go to Pharaoh and we're going to turn staffs into serpents and call plagues on them and everything else. So he leaves that part out. But he informs his father-in-law and God says in verse 19, Go back. Now is time. Your father-in-law gave you the blessing. I spoke to you in the bush. Go back. Not only that, everybody that was seeking your life is dead. Everybody that was seeking Moses' life is dead. Moses has been in the land of Midian for 40 years. He has no idea, probably, who Pharaoh is at this point. It could be the man that he called grandfather. It could be somebody that he spent a lot of time with growing up in Pharaoh's household. He doesn't know. But what we know for sure is that all the people that were aware of the act of murder that Moses committed are gone. And the charge is no longer valid. The statute of limitations has been reached. Nobody can charge you for murder. Go back, Moses. And then God does this wonderful thing of just reminding and encouraging Moses, beginning in verse 21. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all these miracles that I've put in your power. And then he says this very difficult phrase. I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel's my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. The conversation gets very odd at this point, right? God says, Moses, I want you to go. Your mission's going to be successful, but I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he's not going to let the people go. If you're Moses, at this point you're thinking, but you just, you just said the mission was going to be successful. Like, you, you just said that the people would be free. Like, how does that play in with you hardening Pharaoh's heart? Like, you, they're, they're going to go, but they're not going to go? 
Listen, this opens a can of worms that will be open for the rest of the book. The time that we're really going to dig into this phrase about hardening the heart of Pharaoh is going to be when we reach chapter 7. Okay? But all throughout the book of Exodus, I want you to be aware that there are places where it says that God will harden or does harden Pharaoh's heart. And then there's a lot of other places that say Pharaoh hardened his own heart. This is a difficult passage to wrestle with, but the thing that I want you to keep in your mind every time that you see God will harden Pharaoh's heart, you have to remember this is battle between a supposed God and God Almighty. Pharaoh in Egypt is viewed as a God. And so this is a bout, this is a battle between a false God and the one true living God. And so if you can imagine this like a fight, a boxing match, something in the octagon with UFC or something, God doesn't want a first or second round knockout. God doesn't want a TKO. God wants to take Pharaoh 15 rounds and embarrass him in all 15 rounds and then flatten him at the very end. So that there's no doubt, everybody that sees the fight, everybody that hears of the fight knows Pharaoh's got nothing on Yahweh, the one true living God. And so when God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, think of it more as God strengthening Pharaoh's resolve so that Pharaoh won't chicken out of the fight. Because everybody in Egypt might think that Pharaoh's a god, but there's one person who knows Pharaoh's not a god. And it's Pharaoh. Pharaoh knows that he doesn't have magical powers. Pharaoh knows that everybody treats him like a god, but he's not a god. And if God... The one true living God did not strengthen Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh would have bowed out after the Nile turned to blood. Over. It's done. I got nothing on this guy. I want nothing to do with him. But God wants for every single plague to take place because every plague puts to shame a different Egyptian false god. There's a reason for the gnat. There's a reason for the frogs. There's a reason for the blood in the, the water in the Nile to turn to blood. There's a reason for the snakes. There's a reason for every single plague. And the very last plague that we see is what we see in verse 22 and 23. Pharaoh has held captive and tortured God's firstborn son, Israel. As a people, that's how he has treated them. And so God says, the just punishment of the 400 years of slavery and servitude and abuse that you have enacted on my firstborn will be paid back to your household. Because you've had opportunities. God's not the only one who hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh already has a very hard heart. And Pharaoh doubles down and hardens his heart again and refuses to acknowledge God and refuses to give the people the freedom to even go three days journey to worship and come back. He doesn't even give them that freedom. So God says to Moses, this is going to be a long fight. And the end result is it's going to be my son versus his son and my son's not losing. It was very harsh, very hard for us to comprehend. But God is good and God is just. And Pharaoh is wrong. And Pharaoh hardens his own heart and sometimes gets ready to chicken out and God won't let him. He says, oh, no, 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 you picked this fight. You're not getting away now. Have you ever seen the school bully finally get put in their place? 
you know, and then they, they get revealed for the coward that they really are, and they try to run from the fight. And the person who stood up to him goes, Ah, you've been, you've been messing with us too long, buddy. You ain't getting away. And all the other kids circle around them, and they really get shown what they need to know. That's the context of God and Pharaoh for the next several chapters. But we'll really dig into this more when we hit chapter 7. I just want you to have this understanding, this context to put these phrases into. Because yes, God does harden Pharaoh's heart. Yes, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But it's all part of a cosmic battle that is taking place between the one true living God and somebody who is a false God who's been trying to fake it till they make it and been oppressing people for hundreds of years. And God's going to put the school bully back in his place. So then we move on to the, the most fun part of the passage, right? Here, here we go. Verse, verse 24. God has informed Moses. God has reminded Moses. Now God seeks Moses' life. Where out of left field did this come? But the firstborn talk does give us a lot of information as to how to interpret this passage. I'm just going to be up front with you. We've, we've really dug into this passage before on a Wednesday night, alright? There were only nine other people there with me, but we really dug into this passage. We're not going to go into that kind of depth today, all right? But we are going to talk about the fact that there's a lot we don't know about this passage. There's some interpretation that has to go into even translating the text. Because this Hebrew text is very dense and very thick and very difficult. So as you read through it, almost everything in here is a personal pronoun. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him. That's, that's Yahweh, the, the name of the Lord that we talked about met him and sought to put him to death. All of these met him and sought to put him to death. We really don't know if the Lord's seeking to put Moses to death or if the Lord's seeking to put Moses' son to death, but we know that the Lord is seeking out Moses and his family and either Moses or his son, Gershom, are, are about to be killed. One of the two. And then we continue, and Zipporah knows exactly why. Moses' wife knows the exact reason why. She is completely tuned in to what's going on with the Lord. She knows that their son has not followed in the sign of the covenant that designates people as children of God. So one way or the other, Moses and Zipporah were either raising their son Gershom to be an Egyptian or to be a Midianite. Either way... He was not circumcised. Either way, they were, they were excluding him from the covenant. And see, this is, this is where it gets really difficult for us to remember that God is a God of wrath and justice. You see, for those who are in covenant with God, there is fullness of joy. There is an abundant life. There, there is forgiveness and justification and sanctification for all those who are in covenant with the Lord. But for those who are outside of the covenant, there is wrath, there is destruction, and there is justice that they, owe, that they are owed, that they are paid. And Moses cannot be God's guy. Moses cannot be God's messenger. Moses cannot go and represent God to Pharaoh when he is living a life of disbelief outside of the covenant. 
Moses was not even willing to stand up to his wife and say, Honey, I don't care. I am from the line of Abraham. And if we want to be part of the one true and living God, if we want to know the Father, and we want to have eternal life with Him, then we have to pass down this sign of the covenant into our family. Maybe they, maybe they fought about it every day. Who knows? Maybe he put his foot down and Zipporah put her foot down. But she knows. Immediately, the Lord shows up to kill Moses or Gershom, one or the other, and Zipporah acts immediately. I would not have wanted to be a part of this procedure. This is not the, the like slow, timed out, carefully sterilized. This is like Zipporah goes, ah, it's the Lord. Ah, hey, you're good, Gershom. We're good. We're good. It's on his feet. Okay, okay, he's gone. All right, you a bridegroom of blood to me. I tell you what, you a bridegroom of blood to me. I didn't want to do all that. Now look what I had to do. It's a quick scene. This all happens in a blur. And Zipporah doesn't have to stop and go, Hmm, I wonder why the Lord showed up and tried to kill either Moses or my son. I don't understand this. This is crazy. Lord just sent us on this mission. She knows. And she acts immediately. Because there is something special about being in covenant with the Lord. And the Lord gave a sign for His covenant in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was this sign of circumcision. That's how everybody knew. And I I would argue that Moses is probably not the one who has to be circumcised at this point because when Pharaoh's daughter draws him out of the Nile River, she notices he's a Hebrew boy. And there's... Probably only one way to notice very quickly that he's a Hebrew boy. You can go with that. So, Moses probably is in line with the covenant. Gershom probably is not. And folks, if you are outside of the covenant, you can't be God's person. If you're expecting for God to do great things in your life, but you've never taken on faith and entered into a covenant relationship with the Lord and symbolized that through baptism, then folks, you're outside of the covenant. And God does not use people outside of His covenant. This is not a contract. We've talked about this before. Jake's mentioned it before. A contract is an if-then. If you give me $500, then I will give you this. If you do this, then I will do that. A covenantal contract, a covenant is is not a contract because in a covenant, you're saying, I'm going to do my part regardless. I'm going to do my part no matter what you do. Think about a wedding, right? We have a covenant that we enter into with our spouse. Isn't it strange? It's the most romantic day of our life, right? Like brides dream of this day for forever. And look at the language that we use for better or worse. In sickness. And in health. In sickness is first. Did y'all ever catch that? Like, in sick, like, you're assuming they're gonna get sick. All of this deep covenant language when it's supposed to be, you know, I love you. I am so in love with you. Your soul is knit to my soul. And I love you so much. It's just, this is such a romantic day. It's supposed to be all that garbledy goop that you see on the Hallmark Channel that your wives make you watch. Not that my wife makes me watch that all the time. I'm just telling you, that's the romantic thing. That's why everybody wants to write their own vows, right? So that they can say nice romantic-y things to one another. But there is a covenant that is being written and cut at that marriage ceremony that says, regardless, I'm with you. If you treat me like dirt for the rest of my life, I'm hitching my wagon to yours. We are together. We are in this for life till death do us part. Not if you do your part, then I'll do my part. I'm going to do my part whether you do your part or not. It's a covenant 
And then you seal that covenant with a sign, right? With a ring. There's a, there's a way that you know that you're in covenant. That you're in this covenant relationship. There's a way that we know that we're in a covenant relationship with the Lord. And it's not through circumcision anymore. It's through baptism. And God is not going to bless and work and move in powerful ways for somebody who lives outside of His covenant. You've got to be in the covenant. And you've got to have the sign of the covenant. Folks, just if you're married, try walking around without your wedding ring for like a month. I'm sure your spouse will eventually notice and they will not be super happy about it. Anytime you watch any movie or read any book where like a dude is out or a lady is out and they take their ring off and they set it down, great things are about to happen, right? Like that's the sign that great things are to come in this story because they've just taken the sign of their covenant relationship and put it away. Put it down. Leave the ring on. You know why you leave the ring on? So people know that you're in a covenant relationship. Do you know why you get baptized? So that people will know. So that people will understand. So that your faith family, your church will know. It is synonymous and the new version of the circumcision sign that we are in a covenant relationship with God. That for better or worse, in sickness and health, till death does us part, I am with the Lord. I'm in His camp. My wagon is hitched to His. No matter what happens. Look with me in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 11, the word of the Lord says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Thank you, sir. By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism. You see the connection that Scripture in the New Testament is drawing for us between circumcision and baptism. That by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him." Folks, this transaction that takes place is sealed with a sign. If you're going to be involved in the covenant, if you're going to be in a relationship with Christ, you are going to be able to be utilized by God. God will give you what He says in John chapter 10. Life to the full. An abundant life. You know, people who are living by faith in covenant with the Lord are some of the happiest people that I know. They're some of the most joyful people that I know because it's not about them. They want the world to know ongoing, day in and day out, that they love the Lord and they live for Him because they serve Him. The most joyful people on earth are typically the people who pour themselves out for others. And now the folks that live outside of the covenant, the folks over here, this is where you find some of the most miserable people on earth. Because it's all about me. It's all about I, I, I. It's not about what I can do for others. 
There's no concern for Christ and His cause. There's no yearning to be a part of the covenant. They're in a different covenant contract. They're in a different covenant relationship. And it's all about me and my needs and taking care of my own. But God says to give up yourself. Be buried. Be dead. Be buried and raised to new life. And let the sign of that be being put under the water as Christ was put into the ground and raised up the way that Christ was raised up. And let that be the sign, the wedding ring of your union with Christ and your entrance into the covenant relationship with God. And you think, oh, well, that's, I mean, that's all Old Testament stuff. That doesn't really matter. God was willing to kill Moses and pick somebody else or kill Moses' firstborn and force Moses to go anyway over his living outside of the covenant. That's how heavy it is. Folks, don't think that the Lord just takes these covenants and these signs and these things lightly. Don't just think that baptism is just when the preacher gets up there and he just dunks somebody under and he raises his hand and then we, we just watch to see if he's going to slip or fall or let's see what funny thing happens when the baptism goes on this time. It is a sign of somebody dying and being reborn in Christ, putting themselves and their self to death and being raised to walk in a new life that is devoted to Christ, that says, I'm with Jesus, come what may. It does not matter. In sickness and in health, till death does, does me part from this life, I am with Jesus. I've hitched my wagon to Him. And I think a lot of us come to church, and we visit church, and we attend maybe once a week, but we haven't entered into that covenant relationship with Christ. I think there's a lot of us who are proverbially, symbolically living today like Moses was living in these verses. I think there's so many of us that think, you know what, I'm just going to coast through life. I'm just going to fake it till I make it. I don't really want to deal with those hard issues. I don't really want to make sure, make my stand for Jesus. Because if I do, people might judge me. And I just don't know. So I'm, I'm going to stay over here, but I'm going to look like I'm over there. Folks, if, if that's you and church is your hobby... Let me tell you, church is like the worst hobby you could ever have. Church is a way of life. It's not a hobby. If you're using church as your hobby, buy a boat. Get out on the lake. Get on the water. Go fish. Go hunt. Do something else. Don't use church as your hobby to fake out people and make them think you're in this covenant relationship when you're living over here just for you. It ain't going to work. You can't fool Christ. Not even Moses could fool the Lord. The Lord knew Moses was living outside the covenant. And he showed up willing to kill either Moses or his son to get things aright. Would he have gone through with it? I, I don't know. But it was enough for Zipporah to look and go, it's time to straighten our family out. It's time to make this right. It's time to be in correct relationship with God. And folks, I just I feel like we live in the South. And it's so easy to just live in this camp and go over there and pretend like you're in that camp and make church your hobby and live like Moses. I'll go. I'll go talk to Pharaoh. I mean, you forced me to. I don't really want to, but I'll go. You said i got to go. My brother Aaron's going to go with me. I'll go. But we're still in this camp. And God meets Moses on the way at a lodging place and says, uh-uh. 
You either all in or you all out, Moses. What's it going to be? Folks, maybe this morning the Lord is meeting you and this is your lodging place. You can either be all in or all out. What's it going to be? But there's no sense in trying to fake it. There's no point in making church your hobby. Make Christ your life. Be willing to die and be raised to a new life. And wear that ring proudly. And brag about being the bride of Christ. Hey, hey, I'm with Jesus in sickness and in health till death takes me from this world. My wagon's hitched to Him. This is my life. This is who I am. And I have entered into the covenant with Christ. But stop playing. Are you in or are you out? Let's pray. Father, we thank You. God, that You still give us opportunities to be in. That, Lord, You are seeking us out. That You are longing and desiring for us to enter into a covenant relationship with You. A lifelong relationship. The kind of covenant that You made with Abraham. The kind of covenant that You made with David, Lord. Where you said, here are the blessings I will bestow to you. And here is the sign that you belong to me. Lord, help us not to treat church like a hobby. But Father, help us to enter into that lifelong covenant. To where we say to you, Father, for better or worse, in sickness and health, whether the world's upside down, whether everything's right side up, we know that in you there will be fullness of joy. Help us to trust in that and follow hard after You. Don't let us be bandwagon Christians. We want to be Christians when things are going well for Christians and we want to turn around and scorn God when things go wrong. Father, forgive us. Don't let us be those kind of people. Lord, let us be children of the covenant, made new through Christ, buried and raised to new life. Father, Would Your Spirit move on us now that we might make things right if we are in the wrong covenant relationship. We love You, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.